0: You are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Jones. God is good, and all the time, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 46. Luke 46, and it's just a wonderful time of worship. We're so grateful for those of you joining us online and uh, today, we're actually going to begin a, a little bit of a journey towards Easter. Do you realize that after today, we only have five Sundays until Easter? Easter is on April the 4th, and uh, today, we're going to be starting a journey that uh, my prayer is will be transformational for our church and for you personally. Uh, one of the things that I'm convicted about is that there are many people uh, that come to son- church Sunday after Sunday that are struggling. And maybe you're one of those people that's struggling, or maybe you're watching online and you're struggling. And so over these next 40 days, you're going to be given opportunities to draw closer to the Lord. uh, Either through a prayer and worship night, which will be next Sunday evening, which I really want to encourage you to come and be a part of. Or maybe it is towards the end of March where we have a time of a season where we're going to go through a prayer and fasting time. Where we're going to call the church to fast and to pray. And my prayer is is over these next five Sundays that God would do a work in your heart and in my heart so that we can be the people God's called us to be. So let's pray this morning and then we'll jump in. Father, we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the time of worship that we've experienced. Father, today we need you more than we've ever needed you before. God, help us to know and comprehend with all the saints your love today. We pray for those who would love to be here but are not able to be here. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would move mightily. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 9, verse 46. Let's all stand as we read this God's Word this morning. The Bible says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, but he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for one who is not against you is for you. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They actually said that. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. You may be seated. H- how many of you have ever needed an attitude adjustment? <laughs> Believe it or not, as a child, I wasn't perfect. Uh, and there were some times that, that my mom, I can remember my mom and dad saying, Son, do you need an attitude adjustment? Now, for in the Brumbach household, uh, an attitude adjustment often included the Board of Education being applied to the seat of knowledge. But there's from time to time in your life. Can I get a witness on that? Any of you ever had to go through that? But there there are some times in my life that even after growing up and leaving the house that I had to receive some attitude adjustments. You know, as you get older, just because you're older doesn't mean you're wiser. I know a lot of old fools. But in time, in life, we need some attitude adjustments, and it's amazing how somebody will say something, something will happen, and it will realign our attitudes. Just because you grow older doesn't mean you don't have issues, but here's what I've learned. These adjustments are sometimes the best thing that could ever happen to us, because these attitude adjustments are what help us mature, and they also save us from a lot of pain. Well, Jesus here is training his disciples to make disciples. He has been teaching them to trust him. That's what we looked at last week, to trust him and to learn to trust him. But now he's going to teach them and us today how to think like him. You know, one of the key components in making disciples is accountability. It's, it's help holding others accountable in their walk with the Lord. And here Jesus is holding his disciples accountable to not only do right, but to think right. See, following Jesus in faith and lifestyle and helping others do the same involves not only acting like Jesus, but thinking like Jesus. See, a lot of us have stinking thinking. And so in these three episodes that we just read, Jesus here is going to correct the thinking of His disciples. And and, and if you really boil down all three of these issues, it boils down to pride. Sometimes God has to whittle us down. And so what we learn is what He does is He teaches us three things. He teaches us, number one, that service is greater than notice, cooperation is bigger than tribalism and compassion is better than retaliation. So let's unpack those. Number one, we see humility. Jesus is going to teach them humility, that service is greater than notice. In verse 46, an argument arose among them, that is the disciples. If, if you were here last week, or maybe you weren't here last week, or maybe you watched online, that Jesus had just spent some time with Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were at the bottom of that mountain. Jesus heals uh, the, 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 the son of a man who was demon-possessed. The son was demon-possessed. And, and there was this great moment there that happened that Jesus sh- showed not only his glory on the mountain, but his grace in the valley. But then after this great moment of, of where Jesus is really trying to show who he is and who he was, that there was an argument that took place as they were walking back to Capernaum, From the area that many believe was Caesarea Philippi. There's a dispute that arose among them, and this dispute was who was the greatest. Now let me just give you some context. We didn't read it, but if you read verses 44 and 45, Jesus on the way from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum has told his disciples that the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of sinful men, that he is about to be betrayed, he's about to be rejected, he's about to be crucified on a cross. And the interesting thing is that as Jesus has just told them that after displaying who he was in his glory and his grace, the only thing on the disciples' minds was who's greatest. Now, we kind of can do this from time to time. We, we look into superlatives. We have debates like who's the greatest singer, who's the greatest athlete, what's the greatest movie. Maybe you've had those type of debates, but then it gets personal. What's the, who's the greatest sports team? And we know that's the University of Kentucky. Defeating that nasty horde from Tennessee, this yesterday, we are now with that great record of eight and 13. But don't let our record fool you. Who's the best looking? We all know mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the best looking one of all? And every time my mirror says me, who's the smartest? In this day, there was what's called the Jewish hierarchy of honor, that honor, this culture in Jesus' day was an honor-based culture. Even in the Middle East, it's an honor-based culture, and your status was decided on how people addressed you and how people treated you. And that day, where you sat is where you stood. So, like, it's first class and business class and coach. And so now you can just kind of notice, maybe in your sanctified imagination, the smack talk that was happening amongst the twelve. Peter says, hey boys, I'm the guy that walked on water. But his brother Andrew said, yeah, but it was only for five seconds. Judas Iscariot said, oh, I carry the money, what do you bums do? And they all whispered under their breath, but you have sticky fingers. James and John says, we have nicknames. Jesus gave us nicknames, sons of thunder. And they all said, yeah, because you're loud and crazy. Bartholomew said, hey, no one really knows too much about me. I don't really have much to say, and the rest of them say, just you be quiet, Bart. I don't know what the smack talk was, but what we do know is that Mark tells us that Jesus is going to call them out about this. He he does it so subtly because he asked them this question. It's amazing. The setup here is he asked them in Mark's gospel, what is it that you were talking about while we were walking home? What was this discussion that you were having? And I just, in my mind, as, as they know what they had just had this argument about, that they weren't necessarily thinking that Jesus was listening to them. Do you understand that Jesus hears and knows everything you think and say and do? He does. You may not think so, but he does. And so here they're busted. And so verse 47, the Bible says, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, Jesus knew their hearts. And Jesus knows your heart. You can fake it to some people. You can fake it to a lot of people. You can put up a veneer uh, that that you are more pious and more humble. But Jesus really knows your heart, and Jesus really knows my heart. And notice here what Jesus does in this particular story is he doesn't rebuke them. What he wants to do is rebuke redirect them he doesn't smack them down immediately here he wants to redirect them and the reason why is because he understands our hearts and he understands our sinful hearts in the sense that he knows that our hearts are not doing what they were designed to do see all of us were born with a desire for significance all of us were born with a desire to be important to matter and we're not satisfied with mediocrity. Everyone in this room, I don't care who you are or what you are, you want your life to count. Why? Because you were hardwired to receive greatness. God created us to be receivers of greatness, but this greatness that we are to receive should be from God and not from the world or from other people, because in creation, God did some amazing things. I mean, you think about all that God did in creation, how he spoke things into existence. I mean, if you go to the beach, or if you go to the mountains, or if you go to some wonderful places, or you just see the intricacies of how God has fearfully and wonderfully made things, he made all of these amazing things, but only one. Did he give the ability to be his image bearer. Only one of his creatures did he give the unique ability to be in relationship with him and to call him father, and that is you. That is humanity. And so we were created to receive the honor of being an image bearer. We were created to receive greatness. But when sin entered into our world, it turned our desire to receive greatness from God into a desire and a longing to receive greatness from other people. And so because of our sinful hearts, we want to... Have others recognize our greatness. We want others to sing our praises. We want others to follow our lead. Our sinful hearts are conditioned to value the wrong kind of greatness. And so this greatness that we perceive pursue is really relative greatness. Because it's greatness that is defined and measured in comparison to other people. That that was what the argument was. I want to be the greatest of the 12. Compared to all you bums, I want to be the greatest. And it was relative greatness. The greatness that you and I often pursue is just merely smoke and mirrors. John Bloom on this particular topic said that our sin nature is pathologically selfish and replaces God with the self as the standard measure of greatness. It calculates the value of everyone and everything else in relation to the self. So what we do is we, we may not necessarily consciously do it, or maybe we consciously do it, is we sit down and we evaluate everything and everybody by us. We are the sum and the measure of what we define as being great. And so we either value or devalue ourselves based on where we think we rank in our preferred or accessible social context. And so, what we do is we kind of see, well, where do I stand with all these other people? And so, either I get my value, well, I'm smarter than they are, or I get my devalue, my low self esteem, I'm dumber than they are, or I'm better looking than they are, or I'm uglier than they are, or I'm stronger than they are, or I'm weaker than they are. It's like the other day, yesterday, I was running with somebody in our church, and we were just going what we thought was a breakneck speed until this guy just started racing behind us, you know, it's like floating. And now I looked at the guy, and I said, there's always going to be somebody faster. And better than you and me. And so we do this. We we find our value or we devalue ourselves. And then here's what else he says. He says we either value or devalue others based on how they enhance or take away our perceived relative greatness. And so what we do is that if you give me value, then I like you. But if you don't give me value, then I don't really want to have anything to do with you because you're not really worth my time. See, we were created for greatness, and we want it, but we want the wrong kind of greatness. We settle for relative greatness. And so here's the question that I have to ask myself, because this is a struggle of my heart, is does it really matter if we become the king of our little hills? Like, think about this, whatever you're striving for right now, if you get to the top of your ladder, what's up there? You know, I think in my own life, the things that I fight for, the things that you fight for, the things that we fight over, the things that we dream about and scheme for, the status that we long for is just dust in the wind. It's just dust in the wind. And here's the deal: You get to the status that you think that you want to have, that you're longing for, and guess what happens? In a few years, someone else will be there and you'll be forgotten. At your funeral, they'll eat fried chicken, they'll eat uh, potato salad, and they may or may not remember your name. And so these disciples here have the nerve and the audacity to spend the entire walk back home arguing over who was the greatest, and Jesus here redirects them, and he redirects them with an illustration. He brings a child into the fray. Now, what is the deal about this child? Well, what we know in the Greek is this was a little child. In Jesus' day, there was no sentimentalism attached to children. There was no Disney or Chuck E. Cheese in Jerusalem. Families in our day are very child-centric. Most families are ruled not by the parents, but by the child. In Jesus' day, many kids died young or they were just another mouth to feed. And so a lot of kids were born and they were sold into slavery or they were aborted or they were abandoned. Kids were not valuable in that day. And so Jesus says, listen, you want a picture of greatness? In verse number 48, he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. He says, listen, guys, if you want to be great, don't just love what the world says is great. Love and welcome the least. Love and welcome the insignificant. Love and welcome those who can't do anything to help you. And if you receive them, then you're receiving me. And if you receive me, then you're receiving my Father. One of the greatest ministries, we have multiple ministries in our church, but there's at least two wonderful ministries in our church that really exemplify what I think is this kind of mentality. One is our children's ministry, our kids' ministry. It is amazing to me, and I just so, I'm so thankful for Mary Eppel and our whole children's staff and team and directors. Let's give them a hand. I praise God for them, number one, because if we didn't have that ministry, it would be louder in this room. You would probably see one of my kids doing a a, a dirt devil in the floor or something like that. Listen, praise God for our kids' ministry. But there's nothing nothing better than seeing a PhD, we have some of those, or a business leader, a CEO on the floor with a two-year-old loving them and pointing them to Jesus. Praise God for that ministry. And if you're looking for something to help you serve others, we need all the help we can get in the children's ministry. Because the good news is our ministry keeps growing at this church and children's ministry because a lot of y'all are having babies. (laughs) Praise God for that. But another ministry in our church that I think is not necessarily as known about is our special needs, our special friends ministry. Do you know that since the early 70s, our church has been working with people with learning disabilities. And, And these are great people that just pour out their lives to love on these people. That's that's what greatness looks like. See, Jesus says, for he who is the least among you, all is the one who is great. You all are wanting to be king of the mountain, but listen, Jesus is saying that whole system has to be turned upside down. This is a paradoxical statement. He says, basically, if you want to be first, then be last. If you want to be a great leader, then be a great servant. If you want to be great, then as Miss Emma Thompson used to tell me, get low. Greatness is not defined by what you accomplish. Greatness is defined by who you serve. You know, the interesting thing that I found in life is that real rich people don't have to brag that they're rich. Real smart people don't have to brag that they're smart. Real godly people don't want to brag that they're godly because you know it when you see it. The same is true here. If you've got to brag or tell others how great you are, it shows the insecurity of your heart. Jesus says, listen, if you want to be great disciples, stop arguing about it and start serving the least of these. You and I will never make disciples of all people until we redefine what true greatness is. If we're looking for the limelight and the spotlight, and if we're looking to be the next big or great whatever, we may be great, but great at the wrong thing. Listen to this statement and let it permeate your heart this week. Greatness is not earned. It is given by God. You cannot be great in the eyes of God by trying to earn it. And I want you to understand, it is better to be great in the eyes of God than to be great in the eyes of anyone else. And the gospel tells us this, that belonging to Jesus sets us free from being great in the world. But the problem is, And my sinful heart is that sometimes I love myself too much and exalt Christ too little. And so here Jesus redirects. Humility, service is greater than notice. Number two, unity. Here's Jesus continuing. He's talking now about cooperation is bigger than tribalism. So Jesus has just said, listen, if you want to be great, Peter, James, and John, Bartholomew, Simon, Judas, all you other guys, get low. Then John answered Jesus and says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him. Jesus has just talked about loving and receiving insignificant people. And the only thing that was then on John's mind, I mean, you think about this. This Does this not sound like some of you talking to your teenagers? But what about that guy we saw casting out demons in your name? Listen, this wasn't a rumor. This wasn't a report. They saw other people do something that they thought they were uniquely equipped to do. And it messed with their minds. This guy, who they didn't know, was doing the Lord's work. And so John says, listen, Jesus, you know what? You're right about this, sir. We we saw it. When when you sent us out, we saw a guy. He was casting out demons in your name, and we said, dude, stop it. Now, what was this guy doing? He was helping people. He was helping demon-possessed people. (laughs) He was doing the right thing, and he was doing it with the right motive because he wasn't doing it in any other name but the only name that matters, the name of Jesus. And the disciples had the audacity to tell him to stop it. Stop it. Why? John tells us. Because he does not follow with us. So in other words, their opposition boiled down to one thing. He ain't one of us. He's not in our circle. He's not in our group. He's not in our tribe. They try to shut him down because they had put their tribe above the mission. Now, you say, what does this have to do with me? Well, it has a lot to do with all of us. Tribalism will make you do things that make no sense at all. See, these disciples on their first mission trip were just trainees trying to learn how to do something, and here they're stopping someone from doing what they were trained to do. And they were trying to stop the work of God because the worker was not from their tribe. How many times do we do that stuff? There is tribalism that happens today, and our country is filled with tribalism. We have ethnic tribalism, black versus white. Gender tribalism, man versus woman. Generational tribalism, old versus young. Community tribalism, urban versus rural. Class tribalism, rich versus poor. Political tribalism, Democrat versus Republican. Theological tribalism, Arminianism versus Calvinism. And our society wants to create more and more division through different doctrines of demons that are out there so that we can get to this point that the more unique our tribe is, the more enlightened we are. The problem is this, is that we can easily place our little subcultural cliques into a place that we act as if no one outside of that clique really knows God and is really faithful to God's work. How many times have you heard somebody say, I can't believe that person cannot be a Christian and vote for that person? That person cannot be a Christian and do this or that or the other. But it's not sinful things. It's just things that don't fit your political or or personal ideologies or philosophies. Our world is all about making the narrative of us versus them. And if you ain't with us, then you're not right. And sadly, what happens is, is that we make it about us more than we make it about Jesus. Now, I want you to not just lose this thought, that there are distinctions that need to be made. There are truths that cannot be compromised. There is a false gospel out there. There are truths that we need to defend. And we need to stand on and not compromise But there are some things that are not gospel things. And we've got to put the mission above our tertiary, temporary things that we like. The mission is greater than our politics. The mission is greater than our denomination. The mission is greater than our ethnic identity. So what does Jesus do? Verse 50, he redirects. He says, do not stop him, for if they are not against us, then they are for us. The verse says, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. If a person isn't against you in God's work, but is doing God's work, then that person is for you. If the other person is a believer sharing the gospel, loving people in Jesus' name, even though they may not be a part of your tribe, they are a part of his kingdom. And here's what we have to understand, church, that God's kingdom is bigger than our little tribes. If all God has is our church, he ain't got much. If all God has is our denomination, he ain't got much. If all he has is our nation, he doesn't have much. But the good news is that God has way more for him and with us than we know. You know, there are two nations that right now that most Americans are worried about. China and Iran. We hear China, China, China. Iran, Iran, Iran. And even Russia, Russia, Russia. Here, let me just tell you something about the Chinese church. Conservative estimates say that there are at least 100 million Chinese Christians, and that number is growing. It is even some saying that there are more, more true, evangelical, born-again, spirit-filled Chinese Christians in China than there are in the United States. Nick Ripken, in his book, The um, Insanity of God, said that virtually every believer who I have met in China had either been to prison for their faith or knew someone who had. How many of y'all know somebody like that? Right now, I know as a trustee for the International Mission Board that, the, that the, the church in China is sending thousands of missionaries every year around the world. We have a partnership with missionaries from China, at least 800 missionaries who are going to the Middle East in 2022. Now, what about the church in Iran? Iran? Did you know that the church in Iran is the fastest growing church in the world? In 1979, there were 500 Christians. Today, there are over 2 million Christians and growing in the nation, the Islamic nation of Iran. God's got more than us. And we have to get beyond our American cultural Christianity to think that all God has is us. And here's what we also have to understand, that our eternal identity as a Christian outweighs any other earthly identity. That we have more unity in Christ with someone who is from another nation than we do with our neighbor who doesn't know Christ. Here's something that's very hard for me to swallow. I have more unity with a Duke fan who is a Christian than I do with a Kentucky fan who's not. <laughs> Let the hearer hear that word. And here's what you have to understand. Jesus wants us to work together with other believers to carry out His mission. That's why we cooperate with other churches in our area, and that's why we cooperate with other churches in our state, and our nation, and our world, because we can do way more together than we can individually. And as our world becomes more increasingly hostile to Christianity, we need each other now more than ever before. So we need to be careful throwing stones. If they're not against you, then they're for you. Number three, and we'll end. Mercy, compassion is better than retaliation. Verse 51, the days drew near, he has taken up to be taken up, that is to be arrested and betrayed. And he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so as, as he was setting his face to go to Jerusalem, this is, this is the final countdown. He sent messengers ahead of him who went, and as they were leaving where they were, Capernaum, they were going through the Samaritan villages, which Jesus did before. And he sent out an entourage, because Jesus had a bunch of people that would come with him. Everywhere he went, Jesus was, it was Circus Day Jesus. And so, they were going to this little Samaritan village on their way to Jerusalem, and they needed to make reservations. Jesus wanted to give the area some notice. Now, in the past, the Samaritan villages received Jesus. You remember the shady lady of Samaria in John chapter 4, where uh, Jesus knew everything that was going on in her life, and she said, come and see a man who knows everything about me, but yet still loves me. And so, there was a great revivals in some of the Samaritan villages, but yet this particular village didn't want Jesus. They didn't want him there. Now, we can guess on what it could be. It could be the, the tension, the racial, cultural tension. We know that the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other, and maybe here was a village that was kind of a bigoted village, and they didn't want Jesus in their town, and they didn't want Jesus. They, but wh- whatever happens is they rejected Jesus. Now, remember what Jesus had instructed them before, that in any town you go to that doesn't receive you, you just shake the dust off your shoes and you move on. Jesus basically said that the dust on your feet will stand in judgment against them. But what happens when James and John find out that this Samaritan village didn't want their Jesus, what did they do? They got angry. They thought they were owed fanfare. They thought they were owed a nice place to stay. They thought they were owed this great opportunity. But yet they were angry because they didn't get what they felt like they were owed. And so, verse 54, James and John say... All right, Lord, they don't want us. Do you want us now to pray that fire would come down from heaven and consume them, basically like Sodom and Gomorrah? Jesus, do you want us to ask God to send heavenly napalm down from heaven to destroy this entire village and to blast them to hell for all eternity? Because that's basically what they would be doing, right? Now, don't forget James and John have the nickname of Sons of Thunder, and we see now why. Shock and awe. Here's what they thought. You know, Jesus, we are on our way to victory. Nothing and no one is going to stop us or slow us down. So let's just let fire fall down here in Samaria. We don't really like these people anyway. And let Jerusalem be put on notice that the boys are back in town. What they wanted is they wanted instant judgment now. What does Jesus say? Here he rebukes them. You say, well, I wouldn't ever say anything like this. How many of you have ever thought that these people that are against you should just burn and rot in hell? Here's what he says, essentially. He says in other verses that that, that he says here that you guys, you just don't really understand the manner of spirit you're speaking from. Why did Jesus come? Jesus didn't come to destroy lives, Jesus came to save lives. What's Jesus' mission? Not to send people to hell, but to bring people to heaven. And this anger you have because people are rejecting you, well, that's not for me. James 1 verse 20 says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, sometimes we get so self-righteous And we do not realize it's only by the grace of God that we actually follow Jesus. I mean, the only reason that you are a follower of Jesus is because Jesus loved you enough and had compassion upon you. And so we need to have compassion on those rather than praying for judgment. I mean, think about this. I'm going to now get into the weeds. How many of you in this political season have basically wished, you wouldn't say it out loud, but damnation on the people of the other side? Our our job is to have compassion on those who reject Jesus and to pray for them. You know why? Because judgment is coming if they don't repent. And if we believe God, then we should love the people that God places around us even if they reject us. And we should never, ever, ever want people to go to hell. Ever. Ever. No matter who they are, no matter what they believe, no matter what they have done, we should never want the judgment of God to fall on anyone. Penn Jillette, who is a renowned atheist comedian, said in his diatribe little video that maybe you've heard me talk about before, he said this, he says, I do not respect people who do not proselytize. I do not respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever and you think that it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Jesus rebuked them and they went to another village. Listen, after we share, if people reject, we don't get angry, we just keep moving. We just keep moving. We don't argue. We don't seek revenge. We show mercy on them. We turn the other cheek. We pray for our enemies because they're ignorant. And if they reject us, they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting God. We should show mercy because compassion is better than retaliation. Because God, thank God, He delights to show mercy. James chapter 2 says that mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So let's end and here's how we're going to end. How do we get this? H- how do we get humility? H- how do we get unity? H- how do we get mercy? Where does it come from? Did we just muster it up? How do we do that? You know how? I'm going to tell you how. The best attitude of judgment, adjustment we can have is by looking to Jesus. You want your attitude adjusted? Remind yourself of Jesus. You know, in verse 51, it says here that he set, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Going to Jerusalem meant something different to Jesus than it did to his disciples. Jerusalem, to the disciples, in their minds meant glory, to Jesus meant death. See, Jesus has no illusions of a quick, heroic death. He knew that it would be slow and it would be horrific, but Jesus voluntarily went. You know, the cross is not an accident of injustice. God planned it out of his infinite love for sinners like you and me. Jesus came and set his face to Jerusalem to fulfill the mission. And that mission was to die for you and for me. John 10, 18. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. See, on the cross, we see greatness defined. You want to see greatness? Look at Jesus. Who didn't come to be served? But to serve and give his life a ransom for many. In Jesus, you see unity, a unity of purpose. In Jesus, you see mercy rather than hate. So much so that while Jesus was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. You know, if the Samaritans really knew who they just rejected, it may have changed their mind. You know, we talk to people and they reject us if they really knew what we know. Mercy's always greater. And here's what I know. You don't know what I know? That on the cross, God the Father answered that prayer. What did he say? Go put it back up. He said, Father, forgive them. The gospel tells us that because of Jesus, the Father does forgive us. Because of Jesus, we have a Father who forgives us. Because of Jesus, we can continue on. And when we do sin, whether it's pride or bigotedness or intolerance or hate, that we can run to Jesus. And here's what I love about God. The same Father who gives us an attitude adjustment is the same Father who will give us a hug with His grace. You know, that's the great paradox of being a parent, right? You can spank them with one hand and hug them with the other. Sometimes doing both at the same time. And so does our Father. Maybe God has given you an attitude adjustment this morning. Maybe it has nothing to do with anything I talked about. We're never going to see real disciples being made until we have a church that's on our knees in repentance. Starting today and moving towards these next 40 days, I'm calling our church to repentance. I'm calling you to repentance. I'm calling me to repentance. Until we get on our knees and come before the Father and ask Him to forgive us for so many things. We're never going to see God move in our lives. But for some of you this morning, you need to give your life to Jesus. It starts there with surrender. And so today, instead of running from the Father, run to the Father. Because I'll tell you what, He's here today. Bow with me and pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this day. I pray that your Holy Spirit will do a work that I cannot do. You'll do surgery on our hearts. And God, I pray that you, over these next 40 days, as we really think about repentance, and as we unpack what that means, that you help us, God, to see that you are greater, you are better than anything. And that, Father, you are a God who can forgive. And I pray right now for anyone in this room that does not know you as Savior, anyone online that doesn't know you as Savior, that today would be that day of salvation. Father, do the spiritual surgery that you want to do. In Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.com.